Hello and welcome to the podcast, Wellness Matters for Direct Support. This is a podcast developed by the University of Minnesota's Institute on Community Integration. It's focused on the importance of health, wellness, and self-care for direct workers. My name is Chet Cheddar. I work at ICI as a national workforce consultant, as well as I'm one of the co-editors for Frontline Initiatives, which is a magazine we publish along with the National Alliance for Direct Support. I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Mark Olson. Hi, I'm Mark Olson, as, as Chet said, and I'm a trainer, curriculum writer. Um, I have been a direct support professional for many, many years in the past in recreation, residential supports, vocational and advocacy support, and currently for a family member. Um, today, we are going to talk about trauma-informed care, and I, I'd like to introduce our guest, Olivia Kaplan. Olivia has her MSW specializing in mental health and addiction. She works for Carey Services in Indiana as a life success coach. Carey Services received a grant from AWS Foundation to develop the Life Success Coach Program using a trauma-informed care model with the goal of reducing turnover and increasing the independence of individuals receiving support from Carey Services. Olivia was hired in October of 2020 as a life success coach. Now, Olivia, our first question is, how did you become interested in trauma-informed supports? Hi, yeah. Um, so my background um, is in therapy. Uh, I did case management and um, home-based case management, home-based therapy with uh, DCS and probation clients for quite some time before I even um, entered the disability services world. Um, and so a lot of the work I've done in my professional life um, has been in the realm of dealing with trauma, people um, experiencing a lifelong um, history of trauma, or sometimes just um, moments of trauma in their life. Uh, and so that was a big piece of it. And I think my own, my own history, um, with childhood trauma, experiencing, um, just a lot of things growing up, um, and resilience, um, and those protective factors that kind of balance out some of, uh, the things that, you know, maybe you experience as traumatic events in life. Um, you know, when we, when we think about ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, um, my own ACEs score is an eight out of 10. And so, um, thinking, you know, as an adult where I should be right for having experienced a lot of, a lot of trauma, um, growing up, um, I think that really kind of, helped me figure out like, okay, this is something that's necessary for people, um, having different trauma-informed supports in their life, having people who are positive supports, um, and people who can really promote resilience and promote healing and having systems that are set up in a way that, um, that really, um, that really do support and promote healing for people. Now, one of the things you spoke of in, in that particular part was that there can be like small traumas that people have. Um, what are some of the things that you've run into that are kind of those little small traumas that people may not know that that was really a traumatic experience? Um, I think when we when we think about like the difference between some things that are kind of these like quote unquote big T traumas and like little T traumas, um, maybe there are things like moving to a new community, right? And being really lonely and not having support or not having friends, um, not not having anybody in your life that you can talk to. Um, and then that kind of snowballs into maybe different, different things down the line or um, being bullied right? Um, and that is something that maybe can turn into maybe suffering from depression or anxiety or different things that, that come with some of those things. And those are things that, that we see a lot um, too, just in the disability services world. Um, people who uh, have a disability that maybe have moved from home to home or um, don't have natural supports in their life. Um, and so they are really lonely. Um, 
or experience bullying and things like that? Well, I know from my experience in providing support, there were so many folks that I would guess probably experienced that, people that receive supports, um, because of the staff turnover that they deal with. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that might be one of those little T ones for, for some folks. Mm-hmm. Others, it might be a yeah. big T. So, um, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Chet, you have a question. I, yeah, I that's where we're going to go uh, kind of next is, Olivia, could you tell us what, I've heard it phrased a couple different ways, trauma-informed care or trauma-informed supports. Could, tell us what that is and how does it affect um, people with intellectual disabilities? And I think, you know, the example that you just brought up now, Mark, is such a, such a good one because we know that it happens so often. Yeah, yeah. So the way that we kind of define trauma-informed care, like if we're to boil it down to its most simplistic of terms, I guess, would be really a shift in the way we see people, kind of shifting from this mindset of what's wrong with you to what happened to you, right? So when somebody's, you know, acting a certain way or behaving a certain way or doing something that maybe... um, is irritating to us or that we don't agree with, or we just can't understand instead of slipping into this mindset of like, man, what is wrong with you? I can't believe you would do something like that or whatever, right? This place of frustration or irritation. Um, we kind of flip that around and think, okay, what might've happened back here? Um, that's causing this response now, right? Um, chances are maybe something did happen, um, to that person, uh, that, is creating a response in this moment, whether we know about it or we don't. And so really trauma, um, yeah, trauma-informed care is really just a, a systematic way um, in the way that, that we see people. Yeah, and I think just really to step back and and, and think about that, you know, what what has this person gone through in their life and what may be affecting the way that they're they're responding to me now. Um, it might yeah, seem like I, they're really like um, overreacting to something, but we don't know what's underneath all of that. Right. And I think that kind of goes back to even having a more comprehensive understanding of even what trauma is, right? Like, like everybody's experience with trauma is different and it impacts people differently. Um, whether you have a disability, whether you don't, whether you've, you know, lived 70 years of life, whether you, you know, your family of origin, your experience in different places, our, our perception, um, and the way we intake information and understand the world impacts the way that we perceive, um, trauma and how we, how we understand it and how we deal with it. And so, um, my understanding of trauma-informed care even is impacted by what I even believe that trauma is. Uh, and so when we're talking about trauma, understanding that it's, it really is just a significant life event that maybe happened to me or even somebody that I care about. Um, and it's impacted the way that I think, feel, behave, interact with the world around me. Uh, and so having that understanding then shifts the way that maybe I can understand and interact with another person. Right. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. Mark? Yep. Um, so, so why is it important to adopt a trauma-informed approach when supporting people with intellectual disabilities? Yeah, I think, well, that's, I think, a a multifaceted question, right? I think it's, you know, it's, it seems simple. (laughs) It seems simple on the outset, but um, I think, honestly, I think trauma, a trauma informed approach is important just for people in general, right? Um, I think it's important for people who, um, important for people who are, who don't have disabilities. I think it's important for people who are in schools. I think it's important for people who do have disabilities um, because there's a lot of things that we just don't know about people. Um, I mean, for people who have disabilities, like a lot of times there's, we do know 
a lot of stuff that's happened in their life because we get, you know, when they come to our agency, we get a, a PCISP, right? Their person-centered, uh, their support plans, right? We get their behavior plans. We get, we get all this, this, this paperwork and all of these plans that come with people, um, that sometimes outline a lot of really personal details about their life and help us to, to care for them and to treat them in a way that is really informed by what's gone on in their life. Um, but there's always going to be things that we don't know about people. And so adopting um, a trauma-informed care model or a trauma-informed way of caring for people um, just accounts for that margin, right? It just accounts for the things that maybe we don't know. If I only was sensitive to people um, when I knew that they've been through something difficult, I like I wouldn't be sensitive to the majority of the people in the world because majority of the people are not going to tell me when they've been through something hard, right? When they've experienced trauma, because I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't want to go around and have to tell every single person that I encounter all of the terrible things that happened in my life in order to be treated with dignity and respect. Yeah, right? thank goodness we don't and have to so, wear that on our name badges or something. Right, <laughs> right. And so... <laughs> And so, especially for people who have disabilities, sometimes cognitively, um, they don't have the ability to share some of those things, maybe verbally, um, their verbal ability, maybe they communicate differently. And so there's a barrier in that communication to us when they're talking with us or when they're communicating with us about things that they've been through. Um, and, and again, you know, sometimes they just don't want to tell us, um, they just don't want to tell us when they've been through some stuff and, and that's okay. Um, but, but having this mentality and having this, um, this system of care where we're trauma informed helps us to care for people in a way that, that understands, okay, majority of people in the world, it's, like 70% of people in the United States have experienced at least one traumatic event in their life. Higher for people with a disability, right? We can, we can be sensitive then to, to everybody and understand that, that probably I should treat people a little bit, a little bit better. I can treat people knowing, okay, I'll be a little more sensitive to what they've been through. Yeah, would, would, I mean, I, I bring this back to listening to you, you You share this. It ties so closely to some of the person-centered thinking philosophies that I train folks in. Yeah. And how yeah. when we do person-centered thinking, we are talking about coming from where the individual is at. And mm -hmm. they're driving the bus. This is, you know, th th we need to learn about each individual. Now, yeah. when I joined, when, when I got into the field back in the 1980s, um, <laughs> uh, this was not really something that was talked about. And right. I, I'm sitting here thinking and I, I'm going, oh, my gosh, did I do some things in, in, in the past in providing support that probably weren't the best things, but it was what we did at that time. Sure. Um, I ran into some individuals that, uh, you know, had been in institutions talk about some trauma that they'd experienced and yeah. talk about some of the, the behaviors as it were, or the ways people mm -hmm. were communicating that they needed to do something mm -hmm. through that, that communication, that, 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 that action instead, you know, if I had trauma informed care in place back then, I would have done things so much differently. Sure. So, so I appreciate hearing that from you because it, it, it it makes me feel that that we are at least moving in the right direction. Right. I think about stuff like that and I think like, okay, so, so I didn't know back then. Right. And I can't like, I'm not, you're not faulted for what you don't know. Right. Like, well, I can't know that I can't do what I don't know, but when you know better, I, you can do better. Right. <laughs> like mm -hmm. now that I know the information, maybe I could do something with it. Um, and I think that's, that's really the most important piece. Yeah, for sure. Olivia, could you tell us how the organization you work with um, came to provide trauma-informed support? Yeah, so um, you had kind of mentioned this, but it is, it well, started as this grant-funded initiative. So AWS Foundation um, 
really uh, is a big supporter of trauma-informed care and trauma-informed supports. And so they um, they really partnered with us and provided um, kind of the first, really this first leg of the grant. And we're actually in our phase two process now um, to really kind of pilot uh, this program because it hasn't we hadn't figured uh, a different place or hadn't seen a different place where this had been really done in, in this way um, yet. And so, um, you know, our, our agency kind of knew that that something was going on um, and, and had kind of seen different things within the agency. Um, they were like, okay, this is not right, or this isn't going well, or this, you know, we're struggling here and we're struggling here. And we're seeing a lot of like this kind of common thread of people struggling in this way. Um, and so they weren't exactly sure, like, you know, what to do about it. So they did some, some research and some kind of digging and, and this was kind of the, the, the model they came up with, right. Was, um, this, this idea that supporting people via trauma informed supports, uh, would be really beneficial, um, in a lot of ways. And, and we know that, you know, that's the case when we look at the way that they're doing trauma-informed care in schools. Um, a lot of elementary schools and across the country have implemented trauma-informed supports and trauma-informed care models, and that's proven to be really beneficial. So why would we not do that here, right? Uh, and so the, the grant um, initially kind of outlined in the beginning, like working with individuals, right? Like we're really gonna, we're gonna start with individuals. We're gonna, we're gonna do that. And, and when I started like, ideally, that's a great idea because individuals do need that support and do need, um, kind of that, that one-on-one or even like kind of a broader spectrum of support that's trauma-informed. Um, but, but very quickly, uh, I realized that that approach was unsustainable right? Um, only working with the individuals that we serve um, wasn't going to do it if our DSPs weren't tra- using a trauma-informed method, right? Because I'm only one person for mm-hmm. our 220 employees and one person for the, you know, 500 plus people that we serve, right? And so how do we create this like complete culture change in our organization where trauma-informed care and providing trauma-informed supports and being a culture where we are trauma-informed is important. Uh, And so recognizing, okay, we need to work with our DSPs to train them on how to be trauma-informed and how to address you know, the things that are going on in their lives and provide support and resources um, and training to them on what it means to be a a trauma-informed environment and provide that to individuals, Um, supporting our middle management and training them on culture and creating that culture for the DSPs that are on their teams and kind of, and, and figuring out like, where do we start with that? So I decided to start with middle management because we had the most struggle there. they kind of were the crux, right? They're always middle management are always the people who kind of get caught in the crunch um, where they get those top down directives and they get like the kind of the junk from the bottom up. They get all, they receive all the complaints and they get all the directives. Um, and so kind of empowering our middle management and supporting them in a way where they felt like they could implement this kind of a program and they could do that with their teams and they could empower their DSPs to do that. Um, and they could support the individuals that were on their caseloads and things like that. So, um, that's kind of the, the really, really short version of (laughs) how we, uh, how our organization came to, came to providing kind of trauma-informed supports, but, um, but yeah, we, you know, we developed a framework an implementation framework model, um, that, um, kind of goes through this, like this wheel and a process. I have an advisory committee for the program and the development and things like that. So it helps kind of with some oversight and direction. Um, I, yeah. I just love, um, that really looking at 
what what are the DSPs, the direct support workers and professionals, what do they bring with them? And we mm-hmm. we all bring something, you know, with us, yeah. as, as you said. And sometimes that that group of people um, are kind of overlooked. And we yeah. we have to think about one another as coworkers of what, you know, what we've gone through, what our life has been like and, and what some of those things might be. So I really um, I really love that the organization really looked at not just the people served. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Now comes the, the fun part. This question is one that gives you the opportunity, like, you know, you're from the Midwest because we talked a little bit about that earlier, mm-hmm. as are we. We don't toot our horn enough. We just don't being Midwesterners. So here's a chance for you to talk about some of the excess successes that you have had with this approach at your organization and personally. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, in terms of different like successes, man, I think that we've seen a lot more, um, a lot more just like relational success among different people within the organization. Um, when I look at relationships specifically, like for me, that was like a big deal to me was being relational with people and being approachable. Um, I see a lot of people taking advantage of resources and things that I offer, being connected to community resources, being connected to um, different support services and things like that, that we're able to offer through this program specifically. And that's a huge success to me. Things that, you know, might otherwise cause people stress and anxiety with their job, whether it's, you know, I can't get to work because of transportation, figuring out childcare, those kinds of things. Um, all of that. Um, I think another, um, success that we've had is in terms of this position specifically, um, I do a lot of advocating for different policy changes and, um, you know, accessibility, Um, within our policies at the agency, within our agency at that level, um, so that our DSPs um, maybe have better, I don't know, this, this, some of our DSPs struggle to follow policies because either the policies aren't accessible to them or they're, they're too um, high level right? We write all of our policies in this like legalese. Um, and so like myself as like a, like a master's level clinician, I look at this like, you know, 12 page document that has all these humongous words in it. And I'm like, "Mm, do I really need to read that? Do I want to read that? Like, can I like paste that in chat GPT and say, summarize this for me, (laughs) right? Like, how are some of our DSPs expected to follow things that they are not one, maybe not able to read two, can't access. So I think that's been a big success too, is figuring out different ways to simplify and make things accessible for our DSPs so that they know what they're doing. Um, Yeah. Why do, why do the executives are that? Why are they the only ones that get the executive summary? Right? right. I want an executive summary of <laughs> right. literally everything. At, at every level. And it should be written <laughs> it should be written in a yes. language level that people who are English language learners, people mm-hmm. who, who who may not have that legal background can understand. Right. Yeah. So I had um I had read something once that nothing should be communicated above a sixth grade reading level. And I think I had, was at a conference when they were talking about uh, communication. And I thought, man, we really need to work on that because there's a lot of things that I'm like, I know that that's above a sixth grade reading level. We, you know? we even, we, yeah, we, when we, when we write the curriculum work that I do, we write mm-hmm. to a sixth to ninth grade level. Yeah. We, we try, you know, we try and keep it around six, you know, sometimes just because of terminology, basically we do write six to ninth grade level. And the one thing that comes into, into play is sometimes there's terminology that needs defining. And so we'll define that in a better language to try and help people understand. So you're talking the same thing, yeah. the, the same basic concept. That in itself can be a trauma for some people, not being yeah. able to understand. 
Well, and when we think about, when we think about, this is kind of a tangent from your initial question, I think, but when we think about turnover and, and like why people are quitting, like are some of the things that we're asking them to do right at the outset, just really too difficult. Um, I remember when I went through our initial training week and I took our, our med core classes, our med, med administration and the second med core class, med core B was all, it's all, you know, psychotropic medications, understanding med interactions, these kinds of things. And I was like, and, and this is mandated by the state, right? Like if you can't pass it within three times, you cannot work here because you have to be able to pass meds. And, um, I just remember I was, I had graduated from grad school in May of 2019. And so, and I started in, here in October of 2020. So I wasn't that far removed from my graduate, my graduate education. And I was sitting in MedCore and a MedCore B. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I took an entire semester class in my graduate school on what they're teaching in one afternoon in Med Corby. I took a whole semester class on this in grad school. Like what? You know, and 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 we have like we have people who are 18 years old who maybe have a GED high school diploma, right? They maybe are not, not college educated, don't have a master's degree, right? Coming in to do really, really like hard work, rewarding work, but hard work, caring for people. And I'm like, dang, this is a hard class. Well, and in like, that person I, it is really, you know, it's like, do they even want to finish the course? Do they want to stay and work there? If, if they can't right. understand the material they're being asked to, to, to learn. So, and I will say like our, our nursing staff, our health office, they like our nurse who teaches med does a phenomenal job at like really making it understandable and she'll sit and study with them and, and give like, she does a great job of, of really breaking down the information. But I mean, there's some stuff that like is just difficult names right. of medications. There's no easy, <laughs> you're not changing that, you know, you know like, I, I still no get them all wrong. So. I can't even pronounce the names of the medications <laughs> that I take. So, like, I'm with you. I'm like, with you. I'm like, Oh my gosh. And so it's just, yeah, it's just challenging. And I, and I think, I'd, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> There's so many things well, that um, it, it, if it feels defeating from yeah. the outset, how do we then on the back end, um, you know, with this program and kind of helping, how do we help to set people up for success? How do we help them kind of have this sense of belonging here so that they're like, okay, man, even though that was hard, um, I know that people here care about me. I know that I'm valued here. I know that I have something to contribute. Um, I know that I'm doing good work. I mm -hmm. know that, you know, all of these things. Um, yeah. It's a safe place. Exactly. Exactly. And that helps us celebrate the successes too. And I think that's another thing right. that we forget to do quite often. Celebrate mm -hmm. that success. Right. When somebody right. finishes that MedCore course that you're talking about, celebrate mm -hmm. that with them somehow, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like simple things like that are going to really help with the, mm -hmm. with, I think, the concept of, of making, pe making people feel welcome and, and valued and appreciated, as you had said. So, And I think that kind of goes back to like, like thinking and, and talking about when, when I said at the very beginning this um, – idea of just being relational. I can't celebrate with you if I don't know you, right? Yes. If I don't know that you've been struggling, whether it's with, you know, a class and training or even just in your personal life or with something that you're dealing with, with somebody that you're supporting or it, whatever it is. If I don't know that, if I don't know you, I can't celebrate a win with you, right? Um, I can't help you navigate something that's hard if I don't even know 
that that's going on. And so I think, you know, so much of this, this job and so much of this program is about proximity. Um, I can't create an environment for people. One of the, the, we've developed these, well, we didn't develop the five principles, but that that's a core piece of the program. Right. And so within this program, safety, choice, collaboration, trust, and empowerment. And so I can't effectively do those things, right? I can't create an environment that has those things if I'm not getting to know people. I'm do not me a in favor and share those again more slowly. Yeah. The five principles. Safety, yeah, yeah. Safety, um, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. And so those those are great course to live by when you're working mm-hmm. with any human being. Yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate that you shared those again, because I think that that does help people kind of tie it to even some of the other, other uh, resources that they might have and, and show how these things all work together. So yeah. Um, Chad. Yeah. I was wondering what have been some other important lessons learned um, as you've been providing us? Yeah, I think, uh, Gosh, we've learned so much. Uh, we're in, we're we're entering into the fourth year, the second phase of this process, and and I think I think the biggest thing is it's really all about the culture. Um, you really can't piecemeal um, this. You can't say, well, I'm only gonna be trauma-informed care in this department. Like I'm only going to be trauma-informed in this department. I'm only going to implement this program with, with these people or with this person or with this staff or, you know, like you, you just can't, it's, it has to be, um, a whole agency systematic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, uh, another thing that like, that was hard for me personally. And maybe it's just my personality because I'm very much like, um, I'm very, I don't know, bullheaded, maybe, um, strong-willed, uh, a leader. I I used to, I was called bossy a lot as a kid. And now I I like to say that bossy children are strong leaders. Um, Well, we do that person-centered Make it strength-based. We do that person-centered thinking. What's that mild negative that you can, what's the positive in there? That's good. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, but uh, like when I see something as like, man, this is a great idea. This is positive change. We're going to do this. Like not uh, shockingly, not everybody sees it as a great change. <laughs> imagine, imagine that when you ask people to do something different, they don't want to. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, people aren't, people aren't always going to want to make a change. Um, you know, oftentimes they're fine if the change applies to, you know, those other people over there. Right. Um, as long as like, like that department can do it, but like, I don't have to change my processes. I don't have to change my behavior. I don't have to change my language. Um, it seems like it's really just them. And so really kind of uncovering a lot of silos um, that we're experiencing and like kind of departments that need to work together, kind of operate independently until they really need to work together. And there's some friction. Um, and so, you know, when you ask people to change, there's a lot of pushback um, and they're like, well, I think it's a great idea for them. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. It's a great idea for you too. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that that, bossy that's, thing coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, I think, I think it takes, um, it takes a really strong leader to weed out the people who maybe aren't willing to make the change, right? Um, you're always going to have people in your organization who just don't want to do it. And you have to decide, like, y- you got to determine what's more important. Do we want to move forward with this initiative? Because if we don't, you just end up sliding backward because things continue to move, right? There's no such thing as stagnation. Things are going to continue to move. And so if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. And, and so like, 
some people are not going to be on board and maybe it takes them a little longer to catch up and eventually they get there and they're kind of the caboose. Right. Um, but you got to have somebody who's really strong and, and willing to have hard conversations. I think that's so critical. Um, willing to say to people, Hey, like, this is what, this is what we're doing. Right. Just, I think a lot of times there's a misconception, um, between with, with like being bold and having hard conversations and people are like, well, that's not trauma informed. Well, no, it can be. Um, sometimes, sometimes having the hard conversation is the kindest thing you can do for somebody, right? Like sometimes being honest and telling somebody, Hey, this is an area that we're really struggling in. I need you to correct it. I need you to course correct because this is where we're going to. And I need you to figure out how you're going to get there. Right. Um, sometimes it's the most kind thing you can do rather than just leaving them in the dark. And then all of a sudden, you know, you guys are miles ahead and they're like, wait a second, nobody told me, right? Nobody told me that what I was doing was not aligned with where we were going. Uh, and so I think a lot of those things have been, have been big lessons for us in, in figuring out how to get people, um, from one place to another. And, you know, it's still always a work in progress, right? Um, I'm curious. I'm curious. Some of the yeah. people that are the hardest ones to get on board, do they eventually become sometimes your biggest advocates? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah. I've run into that before as well. The other thing that yeah. I've also run into is that sometimes turnover is positive. Yeah. If you've got that person that just can't get on board with where you're going, mm-hmm. it may be time for them to find their next thing and for yeah. you to find the next person that's going to be on board. And yes. that can then help turn over in the end. So Right. Exactly. It, yeah. That's you're exactly right. And and then and having those conversations, right? <laughs> like yeah. like me, I, I'm usually the one who has to like bring that. So my position's unique in that I am my my own department. Um, my program is a standalone and nobody reports to me. Occasionally I have, I have practicum students, um, social work practicum students that will come in, but I have no direct reports and I report directly to the CEO. So I I also kind of operate as like this in-house consultant where I see different things that are going on in different departments. And I'm able to kind of say, Hey, this is not working great, or this is kind of the pulse of the organization or this, people are unhappy with that. Right. And I can say, we need to do something here, right? Like this is not aligned with where we're going and it's not really my position to have a conversation with this person, but you as the CEO, you as the head of the agency can address that and that can be impactful. Right. Absolutely. And that leads us to the next question. How does a trauma-informed organization support direct support professionals? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different things that, a lot of different initiatives that I think we've really tried to put in place for people um, so that they feel supported. Um, first, we I created a trauma-informed care training um, that, we, that I teach um, during our new hire class. Um, so... Every single one of our new hires, direct support professionals and um, any staff that comes in. So admin staff, early head start, anybody that comes into our agency receives that um, trauma-informed care training. So they learn about trauma. They learn about trauma-informed care. They learn about those five principles that I mentioned. And how do I apply those um, in our day-to-day? What does trauma look like when it shows up? Right. Um, what does a trauma response look like when it shows up in somebody that we're going to be supporting? Uh, and how do I navigate some of those things? Right. Some tangible pieces. And and that's one way that we can really support our DSPs is by empowering them with some of that knowledge. Right. I can't expect them to be trauma informed and to support people by being trauma informed if they don't even have the knowledge. Um, so that's that's one part. Um, and then also by me being accessible to people. Um, I make it a point to go visit um, our DSPs, to talk with our DSPs, to build relationships with um, 
the pe- the people that we employ um, so that they know that they can come to me if they need resources, support, um, access and connections to community partners, whether that's for housing, for uh, food assistance, for transportation assistance, they need help finding childcare, whatever that might be, counseling services in the, in the community, um, all different kinds of support um, and ongoing support uh, can kind of be channeled through this program. Um, I kind of, I talked a little bit about this, but but doing some of that advocating for some of those policy changes and different things that maybe don't don't really make sense for our DSPs. Um, or, you know, if I'm, I'm working at a, at a residential home and not at day services, maybe those policies need to look a little bit different because I'm providing different services, right? Um, I think another thing that I kind of mentioned, um, just kind of bringing consistent issues to the forefront. A lot of times, you know, there's such a disconnect from like C-level um, executive management a lot of times and our DSPs. Um, they don't always feel like they can go to our admin people and say, hey, this is problematic for me. Maybe they'll go to their manager, but there's five levels uh, in between a DSP and our CEO. And so kind of, you know, if they have that relationship with me, I can help bridge that gap. Um, I think also just you know, working on engagement strategies, appreciation efforts, helping people feel like they are appreciated and they are valued. And that, you know, if they don't feel valued by anybody else, they can feel valued by me. Right. Um, And I think that that's a really, that's a really, really big piece for me um, with our, with our DSPs Um, and being trauma-informed is like, they'll feel valued by me and they can, and I hope that they feel listened to by me. And so one of the things that I heard there is that that you've become and you use, you connect people to resources that can help them in their b- broader life as well, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is really also a part of it because those traumas that a DSP might have might be about, I lost my daycare. How can I find some childcare? Yeah. yeah. Those kinds of things. And so being a resource there, my car just quit working and I need it for work to take people to the grocery store or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. How can yeah. I get it fixed? And finding those things that can help with uh, those things is, 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 I think, a really good good addition that the organization can do. So Yeah. So much that. that's happening. Yeah. Thank you. So much that's happening in someone's personal life impacts our work life, right? And if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I can't afford for my car to break down. I can't afford to miss a day of work to you know, because my kid is sick, right? I can't, uh, there's so many things that impact that, that then that retention piece, that turnover piece that, you know, well, I might as well just throw in the towel because I keep missing work or whatever that might be. So how do we come up with some different solutions for people um, so that, that we can, we can be, we can be a little creative right? There are resources out there. There are connections in the community that can help people solve some of those, some of those more immediate issues and long-term issues um, that impact not only their personal life that are kind of challenging to deal with, but also impact their work life. And then in turn impact the individuals we support. Olivia, Mark just um, asked you about some of the things that your organization was doing to support the direct support professionals. Can you tell us what sorts of trauma and things are you seeing in your staff members? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we see literally every kind of social problem you can think of. Right. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about some of those more tangible needs, food insecurity, housing issues, childcare, transportation. Um, but you know, we also have single moms, um, that are impacted by domestic violence. Um, I've had DSPs in my office the weekend after they've experienced a sexual assault, trying to figure out what do I do, uh, with this? Where do I go from here? How do I show up to work? Right. How do I get, um, 
get into counseling? Do I talk to a victim's advocate, right? Talking through some of those things with them. Um, we have DSPs who are veterans who are working through some, some complex things, right? Um, DSPs who are grieving some excruciating losses um, and still showing up to care for people, uh, people experiencing generational trauma, um, battling chronic mental illness, um, all sorts of things that kind of impact day-to-day life on a deeper level uh, that that then kind of translate to needing more long-term support. And so connecting people to local counseling services um, in our community or um, local domestic violence shelters, things like that, so that they can get the assistance um, that they need. Yeah. People are going through a lot of different things and to be able to come to someone and talk through those must be extremely valuable. And again, as I said earlier, just that plate, that safe place where you know that you can talk about those things and get the support that you need is, is really invaluable. I would also think that, you know, you know, we know that some of the people that we support um, sometimes, again, show their communication through challenging behaviors and that that might be triggering for yes. some staff members. And how do you support staff members who are kind of juggling that and trying to figure out, you know, where's the best place for me to work? Right. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I address actually in the, um, the trauma-informed care training that we do right at the beginning um, when they first show up uh, to our agency and they're going through that new hire training. Um, I, I have created that new hire training on trauma-informed care to be very discussion-oriented um, for that reason, right? To be, to be about like, okay, so how do you handle things like that, right? Because, you know, let's say I'm struggling with this thing that's going on in my personal life, right? And maybe I'm, I'm getting into fights with my partner every single night and it's really, really hard at home. And so I, I come to work the next day and I'm stressed out and I'm tired and, and I don't feel good. And I'm, I'm super reactive because that's how my brain is has been trained to function now, Mm -hmm, right? right? Because I'm in this really um, contentious relationship. And when someone maybe yells at me at work, right? And an individual I'm supporting yells at me at work, man, what do I do? How do I respond to that? If I'm used to yelling back, right? Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm used to just leaving, just walking away. Um, well, I can't do that if that person needs 24-7 supervision. That's not an option for me, right? And mm-hmm, so right. figuring out how do I juggle those things? How do I address some of my own things? Or how do I maybe kind of make this this like mental separation of, okay, this person is not the person that I'm having these feelings towards, right? Or how do I, how do I manage my own emotions? And so when we go through training, I talk a lot about managing personal stress, finding ways to manage, um, manage my own stress, finding healthy coping skills, figuring out, you know, what works for me, you know, maybe it's journaling, maybe it's FaceTiming my best friend, maybe it's walking my dog, maybe it's exercising, whatever those things are. Um, whatever those things are that work for you, doing them, right? Because it doesn't help if I know what works for me and then I don't do it, right? right. right? <laughs> um, guilty sometimes, but, As but, are figuring we all. Out, right? but figuring out the things that work for you, because, you know, in moments of stress, if we can figure out those things and we can, and we can get good at using our skills, um, when we have moments of daily stress in our lives, when we have moments of big stress or trauma, then I know, oh, this is the thing that helps me when things aren't going well. This is the thing that calms me down. This is the thing that regulates me because I've been practicing it. All right. So when somebody at work is, you know, behaving in a way that's 
not favorable, right? Mm-hmm. Or is yelling at me or is is triggering to me. I I've been practicing in moments of low stress or in moments of daily stress those skills that mm-hmm. are regulating for me and I can use that in that moment. I can do my deep breathing or whatever, you know. It might be that thing I've that you you do before you come on shift, you know, before exactly. you get out of your car. It's like I'm going to take three minutes and I'm going to listen to a song that's going to right. help me relax or or get exactly. me fired up for whatever I'm going to be doing next to get me in that right mental state to kind of switch gears, transition. Yeah, exactly. In baseball, we call that your walk-up music for when you're walking <laughs> right. up to the plate to, to, to hit. Well, same yeah. kind of concept. The thing that will get you motivated and in a good uh-huh. spot. So, yeah, your hype song. Yeah, your yeah. hype song. There you go. That works for me too, hype song. <laughs> Mine would be, by the way, uh, Yakety Sax. So if, if you, you know, look that up sometime, it'll make oh. you laugh. Okay. Because I, I, I always think of life as, as fun. So, all right. So are you going to change that song? Will that song be the intro music for this podcast then? <laughs> Just this one? I don't think we have permission for that. We have to use it. <laughs> We, we use it's got to be like under 15 <laughs> second clip in order to use it. Yeah, something right. like that. Copyright laws. We don't, we don't have the copyright uh, for that, no. That'd be great, though. <laughs> it would be hilarious. All right. Anyway, so, well, Olivia, Olivia Kaplan, we would love to thank you for joining us today and sharing about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed support. It's it, it's It's been a gas, actually. So, um Everyone out there, thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Tune in for future episodes about taking care of our physical and mental health needs as direct support professionals. All our episodes are available at Spotify and Apple for free. Um, So check out the podcast there, or you can go to ici.umn.edu and look us up. Just put in the search Wellness Matters, and it will pull up our actual page at the university and you can click through subscribe and you'll be ready to go. Um, We also invite you to listen to other podcasts for direct support workers also developed at the Institute on community integration. Take a closer look at frontline initiative um, where there are some more podcasts for you. Wellness matters for direct support is for the health wellness and self care of direct support professionals because Your wellness does matter. Thank you, and we'll see you on our next podcast.